Welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. This is episode 31, and Connie, our Jessica Simpson stan, is going to tell us all about Susie Yeager. I am, actually. Do you remember the uh, body spray she used to have that you could eat? No. Does anyone, please, someone, when you're listening to this, <laughs> I don't remember the name of it, but it was like body spray that like tasted good. It was like way inappropriate for like a nine-year-old to be wearing or 11, however old I was. But yeah, that was a thing. So let me know <laughs> if you remember that. awful. I think it was whipped or sugar oh, candy. I think I do. It was like, uh, it came out like a whipped cream. It was whipped. I think you're right. And yeah, you like rubbed it on. Mm-hmm. And like when they did their TV show, she did the ad for it and she kept eating it and she was like, I don't feel very good. Yeah, it was the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, man. You just like unlocked a memory. <laughs> yeah. For me. uh, if you have any left over, send it on. <laughs> I'm sure it's still good. What's the shelf life on that? Just take a video of 15, you taste 20 testing years. It. <laughs> yeah, taste test it. We'll give you some free stickers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Susie Yeager. Right. <laughs> so when I think of criminal profilers, I think of the BAU. I think of Criminal Minds. It's one of the shows that really got me into like the psychology behind murderers and serial killers. And it's like no secret that when we do this podcast, I'm always like, why? Like, why did that happen? Why were they like that? Sometimes the, the BAU. The BAU. What does that the stand behavior, for? The Behavioral Analysis Unit. Dr. Spencer Reed is on it. You know, it's fake, but (laughs) Spencer Reed. Anyways, so going to give everyone a trigger warning like every week, not only because like this case is like kind of traumatic, but with it being summer and like families are going camping, this may give some people some big feelings the next time they they head to the wilderness to camp with their families. I just so. told you that the national parks thing was giving me mm-hmm. severe anxiety and you were like, let's make it worse. Yeah, I kind of spiraled from that. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to talk about the national park people, but how can I make people want to stay inside like we do? So <laughs> here we go. When I think of Montana, what do you think of? Um, when you think of Montana, like what do you think of? Mountains, at like the the range, home, home on the range, you know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about? You think uh, of like woods and bears. Bison. Yeah. yeah. That kind of stuff. Outdoorsy things. Statistically, Montana is a pretty safe place to live. More people fear getting mauled by bears in the woods versus encountering a serial killer. However, 1973, there were two Notable serial killers making their presence known in the Treasure State. Fun fact of the day, that's the nickname for Montana, the Treasure State. That's cute. Wayne Nance, who would later be known as the Missoula Mauler, was just getting started wrecking havoc in Montana when there was another monster who was ending the nearing the end of his reign of terror. Dun, dun, dun. Just tapping yeah. out, ta- tagging out. Boom, you're in. In June 1973, the Yeager family started out on a month-long family vacation. Bill Yeager was an auto worker who had taken a month off of work for this once-in-a-lifetime trip. 
His wife, Marietta, was looking forward to this experience and the memories she thought it would make with her kids. The Jaegers had five, five kids, and Marietta's parents also accompanied them on the trip. I'm not trying on, to go on a road trip with that many people. That is a very – and they're from Michigan, so they're, like, making their way through. They're going all the way out west. It's a pretty gnarly trip. Gives me a lot of anxiety, but, like, that's a lot. That's, that's a decent trip. That's what you did in the 70s, though. Yeah, it is. You, you piled in the van. Yeah. You took off across the great mm-hmm. unknown. On the last night of their stay at Headwater State Park in Montana – the four youngest Jaeger children slept in a tent outside of their parents' camper where Marietta, Bill, and her parents slept. Dan, the oldest of the Jaeger children, slept in the van. This is all like 70s and 80s vibes. Like you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> the, the parents get the van. You kids sleep outside in the dirt. I remember like even in the 90s, like we would go camping and like my grandparents had a camper and like my parents had a camper. And then we would, like, sleep in the tent, like, outside of it. Like, they'd be in there, like, yeah, we're really camping. Now you can't catch me dead in a tent. Like, it's never going to happen. I camped very little in my entire life. But the one time I did go camping, not only did I dress entirely and appropriately, you know, fishnets, plaid skirt. Had a girl. <laughs> the whole look. Uh, the bangs. My grandparents stayed in a camper, and I did camp in a tent. So, yes, you were right. Yeah, it happens. It was a cold night, but the children snuggled in, got warm. Susie Yeager was the youngest of the five. She was seven years old. She gave her parents a hug good night. She expressed her excitement for the rest of the trip. She was the cutest little girl. So cute. Around 4 a.m. I don't like this. I don't like where this is going. (laughs) I know. I'm so sorry. I didn't know Susie was seven. Around 4 a.m., 13-year-old Heidi Yeager woke up to a cool breeze in the tent. She looked around to see that there was a hole that had been cut in the tent, and Susie was missing. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. That's She immediately ran to the camper to alert her parents. Marietta said she woke up and, like, she was half asleep. She thought she was dreaming. She thought that, like, maybe Susie had, like, Gotten out, went to the bathroom, and then she got to the tent and she saw that there had been a hole cut. So she's like, something's wrong, you know, immediately. Bill got in the car and drove to the nearest payphone to call the police because no cell phones. Yeah. Outside of the tent, Marietta found Susie's stuffed animal that she slept with every night. Oh, no. Yeah. The dispatch radioed Don Halton. And he went to the campsite to check things out. He also, like, when he first got the call, he's thinking, all right, she got out to go to the bathroom. Maybe she's lost. But he got there. He also sees there's been a hole cut in the tent. And he knew immediately that they were dealing with a kidnapping. And thankfully, this is not going to be a case where we get bummed about the investigators. Because immediately, the sheriff's department called the FBI. Because of the likelihood that the kidnapper could leave the state with her. Don could see tracks in the dew around the tent that didn't belong to anyone in the family, and they led to an area where cars were parked. But there were no cars there. So FBI Special Agent Pete Dunbar and FBI Special Agent William Terry 
were the FBI agents. I know I said that three times. Sorry, guys. Who took the call and they took over the case. They searched everywhere. The only clues were the footprints and the hole in the tent. Other campers were interviewed. Search parties were formed. The search was the largest in Montana's history. There were helicopters, search dogs. People were canvassing. There were posters everywhere. Tip lines were set up. While police were searching, they had remembered another crime that had occurred in the same woods five years prior. During a Boy Scouts trip, a scout tried to wake his tentmate in the morning when he realized, trigger warning, mate, I also have a Boy Scout right now, so this is, this gave me a lot. Especially traumatic. He realized his tentmate had been stabbed repeatedly and beaten (gasps) in the middle of the night. How do you sleep through that? Whoa. 12-year-old Michael Edward Rainey died the following day from blunt force trauma and a punctured lung. There were never any arrests made. There were never any clues. And I was with you. At first, I was like, how the hell do you not wake up? But my husband has slept through fire alarms, phone calls. (laughs) Our Our daughter has jumped on his face and he still is like asleep. When he was growing up to get ready for school, his dad had to stand across the room with a squirt gun to squirt him in the face to wake him up. (laughs) So, like, I get it. That's hilarious. I get it. Okay. He's a a hard sleeper. Okay. But could the same murderer come back five years later? That's a pretty big, you know, that's a pretty big And it's not the same. Not the same MO. I mean, it's the same, you know, in a tent outside in the woods, but. Uh, yep, I felt the same way. So a week after Susie disappeared, a man called the home of Gallivan County deputy claiming that he was the man who kidnapped Susie and he demanded a $50,000 ransom. He said that she was still alive. He described a deformity that she had on her nails, on her index fingers, which was later confirmed by Bill and Marietta. So I guess her index fingers, the nails were humped on each of them. Okay. The caller said that he wanted the money and a ride to a Denver bus station, and then he hung up. So officers waited. No follow-up calls ever came in. Tips from members of the community started pouring through the tip lines. One that stood out to to the sheriff's office and the FBI was from a woman who said that they needed to look into her neighbor because he was weird and she thought that he would have something to do with this. Now, like I said before, we're this is one of those cases where the investigators followed up on every single tip that came in. They didn't like blow anything off, like they followed up on every tip. So, police recognized the name of the neighbor. His name was David Meerhofer. He was an ex-Marine, a uh, well-known general contractor in town. So the deputies went to his house to question him. They, like I said, they were going down every list of tips. They were following all the tips, but everything checked out. He asked if he could be of any assistance. He let the deputies know that he would help out in any way that he could. And that was it. They just like continued on through their list of tips. Marietta recalled one of the most somber moments was watching the police drag the lake for Susie. She said that she recalled at that moment, she thought, I could kill whoever did this to my daughter with my bare hands. I could put my hands around them and kill them with a smile on my face, which same. Like, yeah. You you go, Marietta. I'm with you. Yep. But I Marietta's, could do it for your daughter, not yep. even mine. 
Marietta's character is far better than mine. And I'll get into that like later on. But she she said that she had not given up hope. She knew that they were looking for Susie's body. But her and Bill were like, we're holding on to the hope that she's alive. We're going to be able to bring her home. But after a month of being at the camp, they were like, we have to go back to Michigan. Like, they have four other kids. FBI, FBI agents were there waiting for her the, from the Detroit field office. The search continued. She said they printed out 10,000 flyers with Susie's information on it. They sent it to every sheriff's office in Montana and the surrounding states. Because of the phone call regarding the ransom, the Jaeger's phone was set up to record any call that came in, and the family was coached on what to say if a call did come in. But it was Marietta who took the job. She's like, I'm not leaving. I'm going to answer every call that comes here. She said it was during this time that she started to feel like her rage and desire for revenge was consuming her. Yeah, she said, no one would blame yeah, her for that. Exactly. She said, I knew that hatred wasn't healthy, that it would that I would obsess and consume me. She said, were I to give in to that kind of mindset, it would be my undoing. It's not to say that it's an easy realization because I felt absolutely justified. She was, she is. She said, I had every right to feel how I did. She does. She was a Roman Catholic who said that she was called to forgive her enemies, not to kill them. So she decided to pray that God would change her heart. She vowed to follow whatever God called for her to do. She said that it was more than just a demonstration of her faith. It was also for her to preserve her mental health. She hoped by letting go of her rage, it would benefit Susie. Now, this is, this is tough. She said, if he had Susie, I wanted him to be good to her. I tried to think positive thoughts for him. And they were simple, unsophisticated things. Let the weather be good for whatever he's doing today. If he's traveling, may he not have car trouble. Which I know we say often, like there is no right or wrong way for parents or family members to, to handle the emotions that come with the trauma, the tragedy. But holy crap. The mental strength that it takes the mental strength that it takes to genuinely forgive and to pray for the well-being of the man who kidnaps your daughter before you even knew what had happened. Like this is just yeah. you have no idea what's happened. I can't fathom. I know that I couldn't do it. I know that forgiveness would not ever be on my plate. No. I've said many, many times to anyone <laughs> yeah. who's listened to me that if something ever happens to one of my kids. Whoever is responsible better hope that the police or the FBI find it before I do. And I'm like 95% sure I probably could find them first. Just throw that out there. For anyone who thinks they could do anything. I believe that as well. I think you could. So I like I respect her for taking this stance on it. It's a it takes a strong person to genuinely forgive. Cause she said, like it was, it's more than just being like, okay, I forgive you. Like I pray for you. She's like, I genuinely had to retrain my brain to think like that because it's an the, active thing you have yeah. to yeah so she never left the house she sat there by the phone waiting for a call one afternoon her middle son needed a ride home from school he had a ride arranged but it fell through so she had to run and get him in the 10 minutes that she was gone he called oh no oh her Oldest son, Dan, was there and he took the call because, like I said, the whole family had been trained on this. The man on the phone said he was the man who abducted Susie and that he couldn't let go of her because if he did, he would get caught. 
He maintained that she was still alive and she was unharmed. The entire call was recorded and traced to a diner in Wyoming. Two minutes after he hung up, Marietta walked back into the house. The diner, they sent deputies to the diner. No one saw a man make the call. And that was like the end of that one. Months passed for the Jaegers with no leads and no more calls. Ugh, hate that for them. Yes. Eight months after Susie was kidnapped, on February 10th, 1974, my birthday's the day before. Well, not in 1974, but, you know. 19-year-old Sandra Smalligan's mom called to file a report that her daughter had made it home a couple nights prior. She was out with her friends. She made it home just after midnight. So I say two nights, but you know what I mean? Like February 9th was like midnight. So it was like the next day, mm-hmm. technically. Yeah. She lived 10 miles from the campsite where Susie was abducted. And the small town of Manhattan, Montana, was small enough that the deputies knew exactly who she was. They knew that she wouldn't just run away. So immediately a a missing persons report was filed. A search was formed to look for her in her car because they couldn't find the car either. Deputy Don Houghton, same deputy from before. Mm -hmm. He'd been the first to arrive at Susie's campsite. He was still working her case. He was also on the case to search for Sandra. So he's out driving. He said in the northwest corner of town, he noticed fresh tire tracks on a dirt road. And then he looked over and he noticed something on the side of the road that seemed kind of odd to him. People, I guess people didn't like really litter in this area. So he looked over and he's like, all right, what is that? When he got out, he saw that it was a pair of woman's panties. (gasps) He decided to check out the barn that was nearby on the property. The door was nailed shut. But it's Montana, so I guess you just break it open. Well, you're the Under, deputy. Yeah, do it. It's like, I do it. Under a tarp and debris, there was a car whose license plate had been removed. Even without the plate, he knew it was Sandra's car. Because, again, small town. But Sandra this was, was no- that night, like the same night that she's reported missing? Or is this? No, no, no. This is like a few days later. Okay. Yeah. Sandra was nowhere to be found. So five square miles were searched around the barn in line searches, which it's exactly what it sounds like. It's people in search parties form a line, and they literally walk every square inch so nothing gets missed. Mm -hmm. There were deputies. There were uh, volunteers, just people from the town that covered this area. Two days later, a group who was searching investigated a 55-gallon drum that was left in the middle of a field. Something inside had been burned. Among the charred wood were bone fragments. Over a 75-yard area, there were over 1,200 bone fragments, most of which were broken or signs that they were cut. Many of them were burned. Forensic pathologists confirmed through dental records that some of the teeth and jaw bone fragments were those of Sandra Smulligan. She had been dismembered. Her remains had been burned. Immediately, deputies feared that whoever murdered Sandra was also responsible for taking Susie. Deputies who worked the two cases often ate lunch together at a local diner. There was always one guy in there who was constantly inserting himself into the conversation, asking, hey, anything new with the case? Can I help? I'll, I'll you know, <sighs> make any breaks. Which, as we know, gruesome gang is a huge... Someone consistently inserts themselves Red as flag. often a huge sign that they're involved. The man, oh, you know, 
David Meerhofer. And I'll be honest, I'm not certain if I'm saying his last name right, but I'll be honest, I don't really give a shit. So yeah, David, I don't care if I say your last name right. He was described by other townspeople as strange, which I take that with a grain of salt because, you know, we are also strange. (laughs) So Don Houghton got that feeling like, eh, maybe we should look into this guy. And like he like let the FBI know. So special agent Pete Dunbar from Susie's case started to put together. He's like piecing this. He's like, all right. So he knows this area well. And surprise, surprise, he had actually dated Sandra. So they're How like, how old was he? Oh, I'll get to that in just a second. Okay. Okay. Because you're thinking old guy. I mean, I'm thinking older guy. You said she was a teenager. Her mom called. He was 24. Oh. He so he's like young guy. <laughs> like young guy. Yeah. Okay. So they're like, yeah, okay, this guy's looking real good. Let's bring him in, going to polygraph him. He aced it. There were no signs of any deception. What a psychopath. He's like, yeah, I did date Sandra, but we went on one date. She didn't really want to pursue a relationship. No, I don't know anything about Susie. I've heard about the case. And that was the extent of it. So still not convinced. They asked him to take sodium amytal and get questioned again. And he was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Under the influence of sodium amytal, he maintained the same story. It didn't waver. Nothing changed. And investigators are like, what the hell? Like, they had that feeling like, this is our guy. But at that point, they're like, you do not take this barbiturate. And then that's what it's for. It's it's that truth serum. Yeah. We've talked about it, it in many cases lo- before. Loosens you up just enough to talk. So, and at this point, other than him dating Sandra, that was the only link he had to any of this. So they had to let him go. And like, that was it. They couldn't get a search warrant for his house. Why would they? For what? I mean, if they have they have reasonable cause enough to give him a polygraph, why couldn't they get a they search warrant? They asked him if he wanted, if he would give it and he volunteered to give it. He was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take it. They didn't I don't have like, like that. Nope. And other than I like, like this picture him in his bathroom shooting himself up with sodium, whatever, and building up a tolerance. It's, you would think like, because you hear like, oh, they brought him in for a polygraph. It's like, oh, well, they had enough evidence to do. But he was just like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do that. They had no evidence at that point. They were just asking him. Total so at psychopath. This point, I feel it in my bones. At this point, Special Agent Dunbar. So they were discouraged because they had nowhere else to go. There were no other suspects. They were sure that this was the guy. So the case stalled for a few months until the spring when Agent Dudbar met with Special Agent Patrick Mullaney, who worked in the brand new field of criminal profiling. He's like, I feel like we could help with this, send over everything. My team's going to take a look at it. And they, the BSU had just been formed in 1972. So this is a brand new program. The idea of being able to look over a case, look over crime scene photos, and develop a profile about a killer. About who, what what kind of person would do this? Mm-hmm. Okay. So his team spent days looking over the case. The BSU determined that the suspect was a young, white male who lived in the vicinity of the camp. The fact that the suspect made off with Susie without alarming anyone showed that he was organized. This scene did not indicate a frenzied teenager, but someone slightly older 
who was a loner with average to above average intelligence. They said that he probably had a military background, possibly a schizophrenic who had trouble with the opposite sex. There was ding, one ding, ding, other ding, ding. there was one other important observation that they gave. They said the person that stood out the most from all of their files was David. But the local authorities and the F- other FBI agents were like, nope, we've already interviewed him. We gave him, you know, the sodium arbitol. Like, no, that can't be him. They were like, ah, 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 someone who is schizophrenic can disassociate themselves enough to pass polygraph tests and to not be affected by the barbiturate. No kidding. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that either. That was the first time I'd ever heard that. They also told Marianne and Bill to keep a phone recorder because he would call on the one-year anniversary of Susie's abduction like anyone who was celebrating an anniversary would. To try and lure him out, Marietta did an interview where she said that her Catholic faith had allowed her to feel sorry for him and that she wanted to talk to him. Surely enough, exactly one year to the minute. Their phone rang. Marietta answered. He said, is this Susie's mom? And she said, I am. She said, I am the man who took your daughter one year ago, this very minute. And then he hung up the phone. Wasn't Ugh. long enough to get a trace. Oh, what just sh- wait. Ugh. Okay, I'm waiting. <laughs> so they waited and he called back that same night. She let him lead the call because the profilers had said that he wants the control of it. He told her that Susie was alive. And that they had been traveling. She hasn't been hurt. Hey, she's just asleep in my cabin. I can't wake her, but I haven't hurt a hair on her head. Marietta, in the most badass mom I've ever read about, she said, you know, I've been praying for you ever since you took her. She asked him how might they help? What can they do for both him and for her to be able to see her daughter again? And she wore down on him. What started off is a conversation that he was dominating of him being like, I'm the one who took your daughter. I did this. She kept telling him how she had been praying for him. And he was like, no, you don't need to pray for me. And like, she just kept going with it. She had him on the phone for over an hour. And by the nice. end of it, he was sobbing like Good. the little bitch that he is. Yeah. And at the Good. time- <laughs> So obviously, like, that's more than enough time to trace a call. Yeah, you could probably trace it, get on the phone, get him over there. Mm-hmm. But at the time, long-distance phone calls were tracked like they were through a series of phone systems all over the country. So, like, you may be calling oh, from okay. one place, and it's got to go all over the damn place to be able to be traced. So they tracked it all the way to Sarasota, where Florida? there was a system. Yeah, Sarasota, Florida, where there was a system failure. That prevented it from being traced any further. Oh, that's so frustrating. So the Jaegers were devastated because the last thing he had said was, hey, she's in my cabin sleeping. She's right over here. I haven't heard her. And Marietta's thinking that was it. That was my chance. That was my, you know, that was the chance I had to see my daughter. A few months later. I have a later, question. Bef- yes. Hold on. They have his voice recorded. Can't they compare the voice recordings? Okay, go ahead. Give me a second, Meg. (laughs) Okay, okay. Hold on. I'll get to that in just a second. 
Because you have to remember, this is the 70s. This technology is new. So a few months later, a rancher in Montana called the police because someone had tapped into his phone line and his bill showed a call to the Jaegers in Michigan. And he was like, hey, time out. I didn't make this phone call. Under the lines, there were tire tracks that didn't belong to his truck. And the rancher was like, the you know, police came out and they were like, well, who would know this ranch well? He said, David. He used to work here. Of course he would. And remember when I said he was an ex-Marine? Yeah. He was a communication specialist. So he would have known. That's what I was going to ask. How did he know how to tap into a phone line? So he would have known how to, to make the call. So back to what you were asking, investigators relied on new technology, brand spanking new, of voice matching to match an earlier interview to the recorded call at the Jaegers. Ding, ding, ding. It was a match. So they went to his house again and they were like, hey, look at this match that we have. He's like, I'm unimpressed. I have relatives who also sound exactly like me. Oh, so you're going to like pin it on some random relative? It so probably they were like, was my, my brother. Well, they were like, oh, okay. We need the names of every single relative who sounds exactly like you. And he was like, oh, okay. Well, here they are. So they rounded them all up. They took them back to the ranch. They tapped back into the fold line to give the exact same situation. And then they called the Jaegers and they set up a blind call where Marietta picked up the phone and they would say, is this Susie's mom? And they they were all numbered. So like person number one, is this Uh Susie's mom? Immediately, she picked David out of the call. He was call number. He was person number two on the call, and she said immediately, "I knew that was him." But still, circumstantial evidence. Oh my gosh! So frustrating. Very, very frustrating. So, profiler said the only way to get him to break is a strong woman needs to confront him. So they are like, Marietta. We need you to come to Montana because they thought that like her confronting him would be the only way that he would crack. So on September 12th, 1974, she met with David Meerhofer at his attorney's office. She said immediately she knew that he was the man who took Susie. She said she looked into his cold, dead eyes, which it's a thing. Dead eyes. We, we've talked about it. <laughs> Got those dead eyes. And she knew that he was a mentally ill man. She looked right at him and she said, I know that you're the man who took my daughter. And he maintained that he did it. He's like, I'm wanting to help any way I can. I, you know, I didn't take your daughter. She talked to him again for over an hour. And his attorney looked at her and was like, this is enough. You've had enough time. She said she shook his hand and she didn't want to let go because she knew she was shaking the hand of the man who took her daughter and she never, she didn't want him out of her sight. Yeah. But she left knowing that he was the man who took Susie. Police knew that he was the man that took Susie, so he was put under 24-hour surveillance, which seemed to amuse him. On September 24th, surveillance saw him walking into his house, but he never came out the following morning. He had slipped out sometime in the middle of the night, and a few days later, the Yeagers got another phone call. This time, the man said his name was Travis. and <laughs> It's <that> me, Travis. <laughs> and Travis knew that the real killer was in Salt Lake City, not not Montana. And that David guy that they're trying to pin it on in Montana is not the real killer. How he would said, you know, Travis? 
He said that he could prove Susie was alive. And then Marietta heard a little girl on the phone say, Mommy, he's nice. I'm doing okay. But Marietta knew immediately that it wasn't Susie because it wasn't her voice. Because you'd know your daughter's voice. Like, yeah. I could pick my kids out of a crowd. Like, you know, <laughs> you know how they say your name. You know, you know that in your bones. Yeah. I can. And my she kids said, sound Susie- almost the exact same when they are like screaming or mad. But I can tell you which scream is whose, you know? Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. And she said that Susie never had called her mommy. So immediately she was like, This guy's taking bri- another person. He's bribed some other kid or like some other little girl to say this. Is this girl going to become the new Susie? Did he, is he going to take and hurt someone else? So as she continued to call him David, she's like, This isn't Travis. This is David. And she just kept at it. He began to get pissed. He began to unravel. And in doing so, he brought up information that she had told him in Montana, information she had never said anywhere else and that had never been released. You dumb so goofed, he, David. So he incriminated himself. And he, as soon as he realized what he did, he told her, you'll never see your daughter alive again. And he hung up the phone. So immediately she calls the FBI, the call, because their phone is still being tracked or traced. Call was traced to a Salt Lake City hotel room, 400 miles from David's house. But when they got there, David wasn't there. Like, there was no one to be found. (sighs) But then out of nowhere, he just shows back up in Montana like, hey, (laughs) here I am. I haven't been anywhere else. I was here the whole time. I was here the whole time. He was immediately arrested. He had already hired a lawyer, though. One of the best defense lawyers in town. In his little in his town. Bo- in his little town. <laughs> yeah, it's podunk true. town. It's like, this is the same guy that we give, like, the DUIs to. <laughs> in his belongings, they found stationery from the motel in Salt Lake City with the name Travis written across it. We love a dumb. <laughs> like, how many times do we have to say it? We love a dumb criminal. So this was everything that they needed for a search warrant. Good. Finally, FBI profilers aided in making the search warrant. So you have to put on a search warrant exactly what you're looking for. And they said that they would that he would keep belongings, whether it's personal belongings, necklaces, or jewelry, body parts. So they got a search warrant for all of those things. They're searching his house inside the freezer. Deputies find packages wrapped in butcher paper with Sandra's initials on it. Also in the freezer was a trigger warning, guys. A severed hand clutching two missing fingers. No sign of Susie. They took this evidence to his attorney and where they were informed by the attorney that David will be confessing to four murders. Whoa. Four. I only know of three that you have told so far, so... Mm -hmm. So he confessed to his first murder, which occurred in 1967. He was a senior in high school. I was going to say, how old was he? He was 18, senior in high school. He said that a fellow student had picked a fight with him. So he was driving by a bridge where he saw that boy's brother. By the, the boy was Bernard Pullman and Bernard's friend playing on a bridge. So he watches as Bernard decides to climb on one of the pillars of the bridge. 
He didn't know that David had already parked on the side of the road and hidden it in the bushes. He had pulled a 22 caliber rifle out of the trunk of his car and he just waited. Bernard looks at his friend Lucas and says, hey, watch this. As he climbed the pillar, those were the last words that Bernard said. David shot him and watched his body plunge into the river. He ran to his car, threw the rifle in the passenger seat, and hit the gas. The police originally thought the boy had just, like, Bernard had just fallen and drowned. But when they discovered his body weeks later, the autopsy revealed he had been shot right through the heart. He was 13. He was murdered because his older brother picked a fight with David psychopath he murdered before he even graduated high school and then he continued to like have this facade i mean everyone knew he was weird but like just the thing right with serial killers you kill and then there's like a cooling down period Mm -hmm. you kill and then there's a cooling down and it makes me wonder if so he joined the military afterwards i'm wondering if like while he was in the marines other things happened that maybe it was just attributed to like war or Mm -hmm. you know that maybe that's why there was such like a, a break in it. Maybe he like did that because time. he so he could attribute it to that. So he could mm-hmm. get that fix in other ways. So he following that, um, he confessed to killing the Boy Scout, Michael Rainey, because he wanted to embarrass that troop because they had rejected him. Yep. I wish everyone else could see, besides oh, our patrons, could see Mike's face right now. What a tiny dick motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Like, that is what, that is little dick energy right there. Yeah. He said that he had tried to strangle him, but when it didn't work, he stabbed him. He denied hitting him in the head, but the autopsy that was performed determined, determined that, was that was a lie. Yeah. So he then admitted to killing Susie. And I'm going to give you guys all a trigger warning because this is really – it was hard for me to write and it's going to be hard for you guys to hear. He said that he had waited until he was sure that all of her family was asleep. He cut the hole in the tent and took her. He took her to the Lockhart Ranch just like he did Sandra. He said that he raped and choked her. He kept her alive for almost a week, just traumatized, you know, just horrible – disgusting things that we don't even need to get into before he um, choked her to death. He dismembered her body and then later burned the remains just like he did Sandra's. He left her head in an outhouse on the property and then scattered her bones around. He did not give an answer as to why, which I can't even imagine being her family and them being like, but why? Because he gave reasons for every other murder, but he was just like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, did they find her head? Mm-hmm. They did. Oh. He said that he had originally, um, was asked about Sandra. He said that he originally had just planned on abducting her after he forced himself into her house because she refused to see him again. So he, they did date and she was like, uh. Mm, you're fucking nah. weird. Yeah. You get that gut feeling. Trust your gut, ladies. Good job. Always trust- I mean, good for Sandra, but also mm-hmm. what a turd. This made me so mad I have cussed more than I have cussed in like any other mm-hmm. episode. He taped her mouth shut as he packed her clothes to abduct her, but he did not realize that he had also taped her nose so she suffocated and he said he did not mean to do that. That was not his plan. 
So he took her also to Lockhart Ranch, where he dismembered her body and burned her remains over cedar shingles. And then he scattered her bones where he had um, scattered Susie's fra- bone fragments, keeping her hand and fingers in his freezer. Now, I will say that there are reports that he cannibalized his victims. I saw that in a few different ones. I That was not in any of the official documents that I read. So, like, I'll... I was going to ask. There were remains in butcher paper, and, like, they, um, especially with, like, how he kept the victims alive, like, or Susie alive for a week afterwards, and uh, that was part of the profile that, like, he probably would do that. So, but there are no official reports of that. That's just in like, you know, you start digging into the rabbit hole and you find like all these articles that are like articles of articles of articles type things. Yeah. Um, Investigators said that with each confession, he seemed to literally shrink in size before like at the end, like by the end, he was just like a shell of a person, which I hope he Well, he had been disassociating or dissociating Mm -hmm. from them. So he was admitting to himself and everyone else that, Yeah. yeah. He was the worst. So they took him back to his cell to file the formal charges because they were like, what the hell? Like, this is not what we were thinking. Like, we were not expecting this. But before any real answers could be had, he hung himself four hours later with his sheet in his cell. Jeez Louise. And I was like, you – and, like, part of me, the psychology is, like, you're right. Like, he disassociated for so long that I think when the realization finally hit, he was like, Nope. Or he just knew when he got to prison it was going to be. Yeah. Death penalty. If you even know, like if prison was a thing. It's. I know that it was the 70s. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's why they have like. That's why they have watch now, you know. Yeah. Like this person is on suicide watch now. And you would think that. You would think that that would. They would have someone there. Like it's. You know, I don't know. I I was surprised that he was left alone enough to where he could do that. Yeah. He was 25 when he died. And I'm letting everyone know right now, we're going to post pictures of him. And if I hear or read that he was an attractive person, I'll put you on blast. And we'll block you. Yeah. <laughs> You're done. Catch that with block. The romanticizing serial killers. Like, no, don't. Either you're doing it because there's something wrong with you or you're doing it because you want the attention of it. And it's like, eh. Yeah, I... Like that he brutalized a seven-year-old little girl. He murdered a 13-year-old boy just because he was pissed off at the kid's brother. Like, How this old is was not, the Boy Scout? Uh, 12. So he murdered a bunch of kids... Yep. And, and his, then a 19-year-old girlfriend. And a yeah. girl who was like, I don't like you anymore. Yeah. So I'm just giving that disclaimer now. But anyways. So his case stands out because it was because it was the very first of a long, long line of cases that would be solved with offender profiling. It had never been. I mean, it had been used, but like that was the first time like they the profile that was used was directly related to how he was captured. And they nailed it. They nailed it. Like there is the the behavioral science unit is insane. I am so fascinated by it. It is kind of magical that they can yeah, because look they're at like, all of the it's like a puzzle. 
Yep, exactly. And it is like if you have if you ever want to research something and just like go in like if you want to like not research the cases specifically, like research the BSU, like it is insane. Like we talked about CODIS last time, but like for me, but this it's they knew he was gonna call on the anniversary. Like that is the stuff that just blows your blows mind. my mind because you see it like if you watch criminal minds you see them give the profiles and it's like this very dramatic thing when they do it and it's like he'll do this or she'll do this and it's this this and, this. and it's but that's always, real life yeah that's real like that's not like that's not just like for good tv like this is this is a, the first and this was in the 70s this is a just think of how much it's come like how far it's come it's yeah. insane it's, i'm so passionate about that <laughs> Whew. Surprisingly, we ha- we have Saint Karen, but now we also have Saint Marietta because she reached out to David's mom. They conversated. They have accompanied accompanied each other to their children's graves. So she's because she was serious she about this too. Yeah, and that's exactly what she said. She said, "This is not. This is two mothers grieving our children." She is a huge advocate. She's for death penalty repeal. Like she is set like on outlawing the death penalty. She speak travels all over speaking about forgiveness. They have um programs set up to help victims families, you know, with the forgiveness process. Like she is all around a saint. We don't we do not deserve her. And it's that is the heartbreaking case of Susie Yeager. I was like Four cases, yo. Yeah, so four cases. Was, it was goes this on, the serial yeah. killer that came in hot on the tails of the other one, or is this yeah, one so, that was first? No, he was first. So when uh, Nance was starting, he had uh, David had just committed his last murder. So they like where okay. one stopped, one began. But like, what's up, Montana? I didn't know you guys had that in you. Like, that's. <laughs> I thought Ugh. you just had that. Cute little beach with all those colorful rocks. I want to go there. Have you seen that picture? I think of Montana and I think of Brokeback Mountain, but I'm pretty sure that's Wyoming, right? Or was it Montana? I think it was Montana. It's one of my favorite movies. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't watched it since it came out, I don't think. It's just, I want to go there. One, it's really cheap to live there, but it's so pretty. So pretty. Hank Green lives there. The... Uh, crash, cor- crash course guy. Hmm. I follow him on TikTok and he posts about it all the time. So I'm like, oh, cool. One of the doctors I used to work with, like when they got out of the military, they moved to Montana and I was always just like, ew. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, but like it, there's also like a lot of snow and mountains. In all fairness, you moved to Ohio, so. <laughs> That's true. I did. I'm like, I'm horrible because I don't like a lot of snow, but I also don't like a lot of summer either. <laughs> That's why I stay inside. Just locked in my climate-controlled like room. <laughs> I need a perfect 75-degree life, and that's it. I won't accept It's been else. like that this week. It's been It like is. I've been 75. thriving. My seasonal You're going to thrive for about one more week before it's 87 degrees. Mm-hmm. You have to wipe your underboob sweat. Yeah. Oh. You had to remind me. <laughs> that it's coming. It is. Uh, Tank top season, S Z N season. So it's also sleep naked gonna, season. 
Too are hot. you gonna do the other serial killer ever or do you know more about him okay i was gonna I say am. can you tell me more about that one but if you're gonna do the case yeah then, i'll do I'll it wait. uh yeah it's that one's like pretty gnarly too like i know a little bit about that one i don't want to give anything away but this one is how just, many serial killers montana has had since then or like just i think there's a total of three or four one of them was like a cannibal that not the guy like not the other one like i said i didn't realize Montana Montana's doing it dirty up there. Mm-hmm. It's like it's weird though because like Montana's got quite a few serial killers, and like I think now like when I think of Montana, I'm like, oh, serial killers. But like it's the same way like in Indiana, I think people who murder children because there's a lot of moms in Indiana. Like the crimes are like women who murder children. Yeah, even now, like yeah. right now, that happens yeah. all the time. Like, what the hell is I, going on? Indiana? I feel like I'm gonna have a mental breakdown every single week that I read. Mm-hmm. The in like any news in Indiana, yeah, it's it's infuriating. It's a, it's a really hard time, like for cases like this and just child cases in general. It's I don't like to do them very often, but man, I feel like I stumble upon them and I, then I get like sucked in. And I you get attached to them too, yeah. And I feel like you know Marietta's story, like Susie's story, like her case needs Sandra, Susie. You know, we gotta we gotta give these victims voices, and like I also have to like her mom. Like that is a a testament all on its own. Like just overcoming that rage and the desire to like I can't, like being face to face and being like I will pray for you. You know I um. I know we talk about the death penalty a lot and we're both kind of gray area on it, but I just, I had, had read a paper for my final in ethics and I told myself, just pick something super easy. Just do why death penalty is immoral. And so I did that. And after I was done with the paper, I was like, I think I just talked myself out of advocating for the death penalty. (laughs) And not always, because I know that the when it's 100%, you're clear. In those cases, like serial killers, people that kill a whole bunch of children, and it's obvious. It's, I, not that, like, I don't believe serial killers deserve the death penalty, because I do. But when they're, a lot of times I feel like that is their easy way out. And they're That's like, what I wrote. Ah, Yes. Is it just giving them like a get out of guilt free card? Mm-hmm. I cannot change my stance on people who murder children. Like I, I think if you're, cause like a lot of, like they're on death row, they're by themselves. Like, you know, they're, if you're going to not give them the death penalty, they need to be put in gen pop with like a sticker. This is exactly what they did. And just Wouldn't that let, be crazy if they all had name tags that just their name and the crimes they committed, and like the prison hierarchy just take control of it? Yeah, let them deal, let them weed themselves out. And Which, I know what I want to happen. Like either put all these disgusting people on an island and just put them there. Let them. I think that's what ha- that's how Australia came about. It is like. <laughs> You put criminals on an island and then you get Australia, like, which we love. That's why Australia. there's so many big, scary bugs there. Yeah. Like, they had to, yeah. 
They, they evolved, had to get big. They evolved to protect themselves. <laughs> but I just feel like I like I said, I know what I want to happen to people who murder children. And I'm this is not to say that people who murder adults like are any less evil, but it takes a truly sick, disgusting person who can never be helped to murder a child. Like a sweet innocent child and the younger they get and the more heinous the crime gets the more i feel passionately about one put them in general population let everyone know exactly what they did or two let the parents take control of it like give me a few minutes with anyone that ever touches well i said i'm gonna find them first and i will proudly serve time i'll be like oh yeah this happened to my kid but don't worry handled it handled it well what did you do i'll never tell (laughs) And if that makes me sound like a psychopath, I don't care. That's what I would do. I know that guy was a psychopath, the stupid guy. I did not know that you could disassociate enough to like pass a polygraph and the It makes sense. It's it's like somebody else did it, right? Mm -hmm. So you're it's still you, but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's real and it's unfortunate that he committed suicide like the little douchebag that he was because there was no way to like go further into it like was this travis that he like was it like a person i don't think it's like multiple personalities but did he dis- disassociate i'm like oh it wasn't me it's like that it's not me it was patricia like you know that <laughs> mean like yeah. from that movie yeah like, like i wonder if it there's four mm-hmm. different kinds of schizophrenia i don't know them offhand because i took psych a couple of semesters ago <laughs> it's all it's all gone now but i would have been interested to learn what was wrong with and like i don't like donating brains to science in the 70s like didn't give as much information as like what you get now but man well that was a good one in the worst possible way way. yeah Yeah. it was rough i don't really have any like housekeeping things for us to other than thank you for everyone who's been signing up for our patreon we see you and yeah. we text each other as soon as we see yeah. it. Yeah. Hey, did and, you see this? Um, last I checked, Catherine Knight, or is that what we're doing? Yes. We're so do Catherine Knight. we're doing Catherine Knight, the first woman for going to Australia speaking, circling back to the Australia. Speaking so of scary gonna- things in Australia, Catherine Knight, the first woman to sentence to life in prison without the possibility of parole. That's a really gnarly, well known case, but. I don't know that much about it, so I'm kind of excited to start. Yeah, research. it's a uh, it's it's insane. But other than that, thanks. So for- if you want to hear that one, sign yeah. up for our Patreon, mm-hmm. and you can hear it when it comes out this month. Yeah, it'll be probably Memorial Day weekend when it releases. So. Ooh, that's my birthday weekend. Just so you guys know. <laughs> Ooh, maybe there'll be something extra special, and then well, there will be because I'm going to tell you how to solve the. The murder mystery I'm sending all of you this week. Ooh, oh, yeah. So if you're a patron, patron, patriot, I never know what to say. It always feels so stupid. So I just like I just say, it. I say patron, patron. It's Patreon, right? Like it's Patreon is the service, and then yeah. patrons are the okay are the subscribers. You could say Patreon subscriber, patrons. Yeah. I like that. But patrons are getting by so, the time this, re- yeah, like. Well, it's a murder no. mystery mini game, essentially. Mm, 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 so we do mm. a sticker of the month club, and the stickers will be the clues. 
and you have to solve who done it. It's, it's neat. I wrote it. So it yeah, might be I like have no that. idea. I have no part of anything with when it comes to that. So she's awesome. You guys will all have to give her a happy birthday at the end of the month. Maybe we'll do an extra special. Hmm, I have an idea. We also have to do our live Q and A, or just yeah. like live Meg and I just talking like weirdly like we do. When are we going to do that? We should tell them now so that they're prepared for it. Maybe also Memorial Day weekend. We can. That's fine. I don't really have any plans. So. Probably that Friday because I don't work that Friday. Uh, the I hate it when it goes to the list. So the twenty eighth. Yeah, that sounds good. At like nine. Yeah, the 28th and 9, we're having a live show. I get my hair done that day, so I'll... <laughs> I'll make it a point to do my hair. I just ordered more hair dye because my kids used the rest of my pink hair dye in the shower last night. And my two-year-old, she's, on, I saw she's that. almost three. She came out and she said, I did pink hair, Mom. I did pink hair. And you sure did. It looks so good. Thank so you. So great. Then the I other one it. immediately wanted it too, but she needed help, so I helped her. Mm. And now they are also both pink hair. Little monsters. It. My daughter doesn't have enough hair to be pink hair. It'd be like pink scalp. We could we could try. I actually, uh, the six-year-old wanted blue, so I ordered her blue. Ooh. my Her hair is just so curly that I really, look, this curly-haired life thing is a, like it's a whole process. So you have to really baby it. And she already got one ringlet stuck around her finger and my husband had to cut it. So <gasps> how did she get it stuck on her finger? Like I don't ask questions. What happens when dad's home? Like <laughs> she, I'm thinking it's because like when I put her to sleep, I play with her curls. So I think like she was trying to put herself to sleep and she just kept spinning and spinning. I'm 100% certain that if I were home, I could have just taken care of it. But he panicked because he's a dad. And so he just cut it. One time when my oldest was two-ish, my kid's hair grows really slow. Even though it's straight, it still comes in really fine and slow. And her bangs were in her eyes. So he trimmed her bangs. But then he also trimmed the side, but not the back (laughs) and gave her... The gnarliest mullet. I've seen pictures of this. She, she would actually be really trendy right now. She'd look. She'd have one of those yeah. cool. Those cool. She's ahead uh, of her time. A cool style girl icon ahead of her time. I know. Uh, but I had a meltdown at work because I just got a picture of it and I cried. It's fine now though. My daughter has three A curls, maybe three B. I have to look at my chart again. So there's like a whole thing. So I'm worried like if I put like color in her hair and mess it up and we're already, we struggle. <laughs> we're already messing it up. I have like a chart of like what to put in her hair at what time. She even has satin pillowcases now to help with the frizz. That's cute. It's like you have to worry about your own skincare routine, but now you also have to worry about your kid's hair care routine. That's mm-hmm. intense. My mother-in-law has like really tight ringlets. My husband, when it's long, has ringlets. And I have like straight hair. So it's like, I don't know what the hell is going on. (laughs) I'm like, you just wash it every three or four, five days. (laughs) (laughs) Just wash it when your butt starts stinking. Gotta get in there. And it's like, (laughs) 
she, you wet it and it goes down to like past her shoulders and then you, it's dry and it's like, oh, she doesn't have any hair. Sorry, we're rambling about our kids' hair. But it's fine. Do you have any curly tips? Slide into my DMs. Is that thing called the curly girl? Are you using the curly girl method? I am. I even plop it. I don't know what that means, but. It's like you just put it in a shirt and then you just like let it plop. Oh, I don't know. Okay. TikTok's really helped out. <laughs> I'm probably doing way too much since she doesn't have a lot of it, but I read that you can never start too early to get a routine down. So how and early is too early? by the time she's four or five and it's longer, she'll be used to it. She'll be like, I'm sorry, I can't swim. It's a shampoo. It's not a shampoo day. <laughs> It'll activate the hydronium thigh or the ammonium thigoclate. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right, guys. <laughs> On that note, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Gruesome Horrific True Crime. We love you, beautiful strangers. And if you love us too, and you'd like us to keep putting out ad-free content, here are some of the ways that you can help support Gruesome. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This helps other true crime connoisseurs find us, and you get a I-knew-them-before-they-were-famous moment. Follow Gruesome Podcast on Instagram and talk to us on our posts. Engage with us. We love to hear from you there. If you'd like to send a donation, we have a Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and to gain access to exclusive Patreon perks. If a one-time donation is more your thing, you can find our Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and our PayPal using our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which, we love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether or not that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, and on Wednesdays, we're, we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye.